You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to welcome Professor Dennis Shirley. Dennis is the Gabelli Faculty Fellow and Professor of Education at the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College. He's additionally a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in London and of the Bosch Foundation in Berlin. Dennis has conducted research and led professional development workshops for teachers and school leaders in 30 countries across six continents, and his work has been translated into many languages. He has a doctorate from Harvard University, and with co-author Andy Hargraves, has published two recent books, as well as many other publications. The recent ones are Five Paths of Student Engagement and Wellbeing in Schools. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you, Deb. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so let's start the conversation. And I thought I'd start with a big kind of umbrella topic because one of the threads that I see through your work um, over decades is that of educational change. You were the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Educational Change for seven years. And a lot of the work that I've read of yours looks at how we can lead positive change in education and how also education might change itself in response to social, political and economic change. And something that you and I both write about is that there aren't any recipes or silver bullets in education. So educational change is complex and contextual and that there's lots of tensions and polarities that educators need to navigate. So I'm wondering, as you look back on your time in the field of education, what do you think has changed? What remains the same? And like, where are we in that landscape of educational change at the moment? Well, thank you, Deborah. That's a a wonderful question. So I would respond to the question by using this framework of the fourth way that Andy Hargreaves and I have written about. Really, the concept of the fourth way builds on a concept of a third way that was a white paper that was written by then Prime Ministers Gerhard Schröder of Germany and Tony Blair of the United Kingdom. And the theory of the third way was that in the post-World War II period, there was a kind of a first way in education that meant that there was um, government support for education there was space for innovation. Innovation was inconsistent. It wasn't structural. That was then followed by a second wave change in the 80s and 90s, which brought in a lot of standardization, a lot of testing, a lot of competition, some privatization of education. And then this was followed up by an effort to have a third way that would combine the best of government support with the best of competition in markets. So that was the theory of the third way. And and Andy and I looked at the third way and what it meant in education. And what it actually meant was there were efforts to innovate and have state support. But in the end, the competition, the standardization, the testing, the data-driven decision-making took over everything. So in the U.S., that meant the No Child Left Behind Act. In Australia, the U.K., many other countries, there were variations on a theme. NAPLAN is is what it's called in Australia, EQAO, Education Quality Office of Assessment in Ontario, Canada, provincial achievement tests in Alberta, Canada, all these different testing systems were put in place and became increasingly the drivers of change rather than the educators, rather than the students' questions, rather than pressing societal needs. So the argument of the fourth way was what we needed was we needed very strong government support, very generous Uh, government support, but we needed innovation being driven by the people in the profession, by the students and by the parents. 
and not by market-oriented reforms brought in to bear on education from policymakers. That's the argument that came out in 2009 with our first book called The Fourth Way, a second book called The Global Fourth Way. And Andy and I are still largely working with that framework. You know, we will work with it in terms of well-being for young people in one book, student engagement in another, a forthcoming book on identity. But we're still working with this overall framework of trying to help educators to understand what these broader changes have done to us on a daily basis in the field. And I'll just give one illustration of that. There's a lot of research saying it's very good for young people to be outdoors, actually for everybody to be outdoors, to be exercising outdoors, better than to be in a gym. Okay, better than to be doing weights inside. Go outside into nature as, as often as you can. If I work with U.S. educators around this, the question comes up very quickly as often. Well, that sounds really exciting. Where can I get some funding for that? <laughs> now, Deb, it really doesn't cost anything to go outside. <laughs> it doesn't cost anything to go out and study the bird life in your community, to look up at the, the, the weather patterns. Okay, but we've been so shaped by what markets do to education, that the idea that you could just go outside with your young people and do some nature study, do some outdoor learning, is something you could do for free. Somehow seems like something strange. It has to kind of first pass through this market-mediated fulcrum. That's the problem that we're in right now. And that's how we have been, in some ways, professionally deformed by what the third way in particular has done to us. When I was digging into your Google Scholar profile in preparation for chatting to you today, your work on the fourth way is by far the most cited work of yours. So it's obviously foundational for a lot of scholars in the work that they do. What you're saying though is that education as a profession and as a field has been conditioned into this corporate marketized, data-driven rather than informed kind of sense of what we do and therefore what we need to do is reprofessionalize teaching and education yeah, yeah, I'd say reprofessionalizing it is um, the way that I prefer. I, I prefer to look at it that way. As long as part of that is kind of um, recovering the humanistic aspirations and goals of education. So it's not kind of just getting smarter with data, not just getting better with technology, not just getting better with alignment. We often use that expression in education. I hear it all the time. We have to get on the same page. But what if we get on the same page and it's the wrong page? So we have to have people in the profession who can help to direct us to getting moving in, in the right direction. So professionalization is very, very good. We just have to make sure that professionalization, sometimes that can be used as a bit of a weapon against uh, parents, community members, or students. I'm the one with the master's degree. I'm the one that knows what's going on because um, sometimes we don't see things. Um, from our professional lenses. Um, and that's where we need community partners to tell us, you know, doing a land blessing is really appropriate. I don't think we can say that came from within the profession, right? That came more from civil society and indigenous funds of knowledge. So a, a broad sense of professionalism that isn't exclusionary is what I would aspire towards to renew education. And so teachers as being respected and those who are leading schools being respected, but that importance of community and communication and working together, multiple stakeholders working together in education with that, it sounds like it's more about less about what we're doing and more about the drivers, why we're doing it, what our foundation stone is, or it's maybe a bit of both. I, I, I think for me that is, you know, 
one of the books that I'm proudest of is called The Mindful Teacher, which I wrote with a fourth grade teacher here in the Boston Public Schools. And it was really inspired by the um, engaged Buddhism of Thich Nhat Hanh in many ways. And he had 14 mindfulness teachings. And the first one was uh, detachment from views. He's always kind of, he was always asking, he's passed away recently. He was always asking, what makes you so sure? <laughs> right? What makes you so sure? So it's good to have commitments. It's good to have orientations. It's essential in education to be open-minded. And, and so I, I try to think a lot about, we can do very shallow forms of listening with each other, where it's kind of like, I ask you a question, you give me, then we get back on doing what we're going to do anyway. There's a deeper form of listening where we let the interlocutor really search let the other person search for what they're trying to express and and let that resonate. Um, let that just resonate and sit with us for a while. I think that that kind of mindful listening is something that for me is a very important part of a professional ethos of commitment to dialogue and, and respect. We have to be careful with the word respect. It can be kind of authoritarian. You know, I want you to respect me, but it's hopefully something deeper than that. I think that notion of listening is so important and I'm thinking about listening to students, listening to parents, listening to colleagues, uh, listening to each other uh, and coaching something that I've been involved in a lot but what training and coaching has really taught me is to be a good listener and not to fill the spaces uh, and not to wait for my turn to speak but actually really to listen and to allow that space for someone else. I'm actually reflecting on uh, my husband. Sometimes he'll say, will you do that coaching thing to me? And what he means is, will you just listen and not give me your amazing advice? (laughs) But I was smiling before because actually my next question was about that book, The Mindful Teacher, that you co-authored with Elizabeth MacDonald that presents findings from a six-year project with the Boston Public Schools on teacher reflection, journaling, meditation and dialogue. And I guess I know that some of your recent works also dealt with well-being in probably a, a different way, but I'm wondering how that work and that book, The Mindful Teacher, and your thinking there, how that is still relevant or more relevant, differently relevant to how to what it was when you actually did that work and, and wrote it up. Thank you. It's a great question. I think that the mindfulness piece is foundational for me. So whether you kind of use a more Christian term like agape, kind of well-wishing for other people, or you use a Buddhist term like loving kindness, or you draw on indigenous knowledge systems, whatever you draw upon, it's trying to cultivate an attitude of, of well-wishing for other people. And so often, if I'm in a quandary, if there's a conflict going on, I'll do some soul searching and I'll try and figure out, okay, what, 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 is, what is the thing here that can most express a kind of a disinterested love, if I could put it that way, a care, an ethic, a stewardship, a dedication, and openness, all of these virtues. And so for me, that that book kind of started in one of these wonderful crises that you have as an educator, which is I was with colleagues at Boston College, and we were presenting our research, and there was a, a very highly respected teacher in the room, and the teacher stood up at the end of all of our presentations and said, you know, it seems like you guys have, have interesting questions. You have great methodologies. I can't understand all of your methodologies, but they seem impressive. Your findings seem interesting. But listening to you all, I feel that your questions are not our questions. That was Pat Natalie who said that to us. And, and that gave me a headache for maybe six weeks. <laughs> and then I was realized, you know, I realized that I was really kind of in this um, echo chamber, maybe, that was carrying me along of the researchers. And then it was kind of a, a disruption 
in the sense of like, am I really open? Am I really open? Am I really curious about what's going on in the schools, which is where I work? <laughs> or have I become kind of captive to the dominant research paradigms? So the mindful teacher, to a certain extent, is similar with the community organizing work that I had done previously, which was really working with Black and Hispanic communities in Texas predominantly back in the, the 90s. I seem to be interested, Deb, in disrupting habitual patterns of inquiry, including my own. <laughs> mm. I, seem to I seem to be on some kind of a quest or a journey to try and find out what is essentially true and to do that, not just from a clinical sense, but from an existential foundation. And then that carries me into well-being. So, okay, mindfulness, that's good. Calming the body, focusing the mind, cognitive mindfulness, not just quieting the mind, but also thinking more clearly, but then kind of looking into schools and seeing, huh, we're giving these teachers these tests to give to these kids. And in the U.S., it's grades three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then high school graduation, right? It's a lot of testing. And it kind of drives everything because even at grade three, the pressure is put on the grade two, grade one, and the kindergarten teachers to prepare the kids for the tests. That produces a lot of ill being throughout the system. And so mindfulness isn't just coming in and meditating and helping the kids to function with a distorted system. There has to be kind of cognitive mindfulness that helps us to change that. R really, our students are always such excellent educators. So one of my students, after reading The Mindful Teacher, wrote a paper and said, you know, it's really great that you're calming down the teachers, helping them to focus, helping them to find inner peace. But wouldn't it be great to get rid of the problems that are driving them crazy in the first place? <laughs> and that's then why in the field of educational change, it's not enough to just have individuals who are calming ourselves down, but we also need to be realistic and look at the power structures that are going on in schools and see what, what, what these are doing to our young people and to us, to the whole society. Definitely with well-being and teachers, it's become much more about looking seriously at workload rather than providing the individual tools. It's become, I think, teachers are asking for it to be less about an individual responsibility of the teacher being mindful and the teacher practicing self-care, that that's a great thing to do, but that it's not a fix for the work of a teacher that is causing, as you say, the problems that might be causing the ill-being. And similarly for students. Right, right. I think one of the things that was, well, we developed these seven synergies of mindful teaching, which were things like detachment from view, professionalism. One of them was stopping, <laughs> just stopping, learning to practice stopping. And, you know, Deb, if I would be doing workshops with teachers or with high school students around mindfulness, and we would look at these seven synergies, and I would say, which one of these seven is most missing in your school? didn't matter whether you're teachers or students, it was always a sense of stopping. So there is this Korean-German uh, philosopher I like very much, Byung Chul Han, and he's written a book called The Burnout Society. And the, the book is kind of a, it, it describes a society where we're always under pressure. We're always feeling like I need to be doing more. And in the US, we have a particularly bad case of this. We, we work, I think something like six weeks more a year than, than most uh, continental Europeans. Right. One of the things when I go to the, my Bosch fellowship in Berlin is I kind of see, oh, my gosh, these Germans are supposed to be so such hardworking people, according to the stereotypes. But here's one religious holiday. Here's a national holiday. Here's a holiday of this particular city or state. 
plus six weeks of paid vacation. I mean, it's really kind of mm-hmm. kind of amazing. So seeing it, can we design our society so that we can we don't put all this extraordinary pressure on everyone that has been contributing to the anxiety and depression crisis that you know about? That sense of stopping is really interesting. I, you know, I'm just as guilty as anyone else of being busy. And I was talking to someone a few years ago professionally and they said to me, I think you need to pause. And I said, oh, I do pause. I pause and then I do the next thing or I take a break from this thing by doing this other thing. And they're like, no, no, actually just pause and that's the thing that you do. And I had to stop and think about that because I didn't know what that looked like. I'd sort of done a PhD while I was parenting very small children and working and and so for me, a break was doing something different to what I'd done five minutes ago, but I had to really teach myself what it is to stop or to do something that is really not filling that gap with something else. So that's that's a, a societal dilemma that we have now. Um, do you feel like you've been able to stop a bit, if I could ask you? I feel that I, I try to schedule pauses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not very good at intuitively pausing, but I do try to intentionally pause in different ways, whether that's, you know, 10 minutes in a, in a work day or whether that's something that I carve time out for, put in my calendar, those kinds of things. So I think that means I've gotten better at it, but I wouldn't call myself a, a mindful teacher according to your book. Well, it's, I suppose there's many different ways to be mindful. The book should not be taken as an excuse for kind of saying, oh, I've been working too hard, now I'm going to smoke a cigarette and, and watch some bowling on TV. That's not the argument. <laughs> it's, it really is about kind of slowing down the whole system mm. and paying attention to detail so that little things, little things in life, all of a sudden can just illuminate one moment and we can kind of carry that memory with us for decades uh, a very simple thing. I was hiking with Andy on the Appalachian Trail and we stayed in this lean-to and it was with a bunch of strangers. And the next morning we all got up in the dark and we were all preparing our breakfast. And one of, one of the traveling companions said, okay, wait, the sun is just getting ready to come up over that mountain. Let's all stop. And so you're, you're there with maybe 14 strangers, all just standing and watching the sun slowly come up over the mountain, right? And the whole valley gets bathed in light. And then you realize this gift happens every day. The sun comes up every day. And how often do we stop and just appreciate that we're on this amazing planet that's spinning through space around the sun that just generates all this life? So that is something I, I, w- I would love every young person frequently to have those kinds of experiences where they want to be stewards of the planet. They appreciate its beauty. They appreciate the kind of connection that's possible in a group around that. So ultimately, I suppose in some sense, I have to confess that I'm a romantic, mm. <laughs> that, that, that I want young people to have this sense of, you know, that life is full of sparkle. It has shadow. It has light. You know, it has so many different dimensions, and that's what a good education should provide them with. And it seems that with your work, you sort of are constantly drawing together that very rational, intellectual thinking research side of things and that kind of aesthetic, romantic, idealistic side of things. I heard somewhere that your great-grandmother, Margaret Wolfe Hungerford, coined the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And do you feel like it's kind of in your blood, that sense of the aesthetic or of romanticism, that you bring that with you to the work that you do in education? 
Yes, I, I, I do. So, so Margaret Wolf Hungerford died of tuberculosis in Ireland, and then my great grandfather took the seven kids off to make a fresh start in North America. Heard that there was land up in Ontario, moved up there, tried to get sheep farming going, failed. Bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco with the goal of bringing all the kids with him afterwards. Caught pneumonia, died, and is buried in a pauper's grave in uh, Reno, Nevada. At that point, all the kids dispersed. My grandmother was the youngest of them. But somehow her older sisters were able to teach her you know, a fair amount of reading and writing. And um, I still have like her old King James Bible, you know, which she filled with drawings of little fern plants up in Canada. I don't think she was so interested in the theology. <laughs> but this sense of kind of in life that life um, throws you kind of, you know, these kind of crazy curveballs. And my, my grandmother had married, had five kids, and her husband was murdered. You, you know, the sense that life is hard. It's really hard. But if you can, try and grab onto some poetry, some music, some art, some form of spirituality or something. You know, yeah, something that can help you to kind of really see see how beautiful life can be also. So we, we, we have to try and do both things. And maybe in education, Andy and I have a critique um, of some of the well-being stuff. Well-being can be a transient state in life. Anybody who just walks around perpetually happy with everything that's going on is a frightening person. <laughs> so we have to be able to plumb the depths <laughs> also, right? It's a you different have to, kind of pathology. Yeah, you, you have to be able to see... You, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine or, you know, with climate change or endemic racism, all, all these different things. We have to be able to look at those. But then I would like us to provide our young people with some really nourishing resources so that they can replenish their spirits deeply, not just kind of quickly, but really deeply, and then face whatever generational challenges they will be encountering. You and Andy talk in that newer book, Wellbeing in Schools, about happiness and that happiness isn't being well, and that emotions like anger and frustration can be really important in our lives in propelling us towards meaningful change. And, you know, you're saying, uh, I think you said before we started recording that you have had a mosaic idea that you would say, you know, save the world, change the world as an educator. But actually, sometimes we need that sense of distress to propel us forward to to make those changes. And, and our the young people that we're teaching as well are likely to need to see a sense of urgency and what they see needs to change in the world, but at the same time be able to keep themselves well while doing that. So what are the kinds of things you talk about in that new book that we can be doing or what's getting in our way or what what are the possibilities? There is a part of, of the book which is thinking larger scale. So I know that this is hard for a number of educators. As educators, we are dealing with the nitty-gritty daily lives of kids. If you're teaching composition, this should be a colon here. This shouldn't be a semicolon. Or wait a minute, actually, it should be two separate sentences, and the paragraph break isn't in the right place. So we have to really get into all of the details of our craft. But we say that there are three forces that we should really be looking at to get to well-being. And the first one is social prosperity, not economic wealth, but social prosperity in the sense that we build societies that are open, that are equal, that are free, that are inclusive. And so a broader sense of well-being like that promoted by UNESCO, where they look at indicators of social equality, access to health care, factors like that. 
in, in terms of understanding well-being. So social prosperity, not just economic prosperity. Then we also propose looking at technology use through an ethical lens. So, you know, right now in the U.S., 75% of adults report that they are addicted to their phones. And you can kind of see it all the time. Right outside of my office window here is a park. And I often see the parents looking at the phones. Every now and then they'll check and see that the kids are okay. But the phone is foreground. The kids are background. And so trying to think about what are the right ways to use technology? In what ways is it truly liberating? In what ways is it maybe depleting us? of those experiences that can enrich our lives. And then the third part is restorative nature. So if we want our children to be good stewards of the planets, we have to create a sense of mystery and wonder for the planet, for life. And that is something that we advocate. So it's a very different approach to well-being. It's not like if you kind of look at the Center for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, they have a whole wheel, right? New South Wales has a well-being strategy. Ontario, the United Kingdom, everybody has these different strategies. What Andy and I did is we kind of looked at a lot of the stuff that's out there and we thought, well, what's missing? What's really missing from a lot of these frameworks? And then you start finding, and it makes sense that a lot of them are tailored to things that teachers can do. However, <laughs> if the teachers are working in systems that promote ill-being, then somebody has to address that. And part of what public intellectuals should do is to help the people whose minds are all kind of caught up in this little house of mirrors that we call schools to step outside and kind of see, whoa, maybe there's some other things that I can add in. So maybe in my school it is data-driven, but I'm a biology teacher. I can take the kids outside sometimes to look at what's what's going on with the change of seasons. Okay, Or I'm a literature teacher and we're reading a poem here by Emily Dickinson that's about longing and about obstacles that get in the way of your aspirations. Can I recite it for you? It's short. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Our, Our lives are Swiss, so still, so cool, till some odd afternoon the Alps reveal their curtains and we look further on. Italy stands on the other side, but like a guard between, the silent Alps, the siren Alps, forever intervene. So the mountains get in the way, right? You, you kind of want to get to Italy. You want to get to something that you imagine is kind of spectacular. And then we have these obstacles in life, right? And I've hiked in, in your blue... Blue mountains? Blue mountains, yeah. Those are really beautiful. And so it's, it's kind of about trying to light a spark in our schools so that our young people are, are like... The young kids are, you know, like when they're grade one, they're excited to go back to school on Monday. And and then we kind of deplete that. And that is the theme, actually, of the other book on student engagement. It's like, what happens so that we lose this engagement? It kind of tends to start off very strong in schools and it gradually tapers off by the time it's middle school, it's its lowest point, and then it tends to come back towards the end of secondary school. But what's happening in those years so that it just feels like drudgery for our young people? How can, how can we turn learning into drudgery? It's dreadful, really. we got to work on that. Mm. 
I read your um, Five Paths of Student Engagement book, that another one that you co-wrote with Andy Hargraves, and you say towards the end that student engagement is a promise and a battle, mm-hmm. a battle for involved and empowered learning in the face of unnecessary restrictions and endless distractions and a promise to expect and enable students to undertake something hard to the best of their ability in ways that are psychologically and socially meaningful and to experience fulfilment along the way. And you also write that engagement is a battle for the hearts and minds of students against some of the things you've talked about, such as the excesses of standardised testing, digital distractions, senses of entitlement and corporate solutions for sale. And I can see in your work, you know, your wellbeing work, your mindful teacher work, your engagement work, your identity work, which is coming up. So in the the chapter that you wrote for uh, the book that I edited, Future Alternatives for Educational Leadership, you write a really provocative and important chapter, I think, on the importance of identity and intersectionality for educators and education. Uh, And I think you're developing that now further. And there's, there's these kind of through lines through all of these of humanity, but social issues. I guess I'm wondering, what would you say to a teacher who's saying, well, these things that you're writing about are you know, equality, inclusion, nature, the system, what can I do? You've given a couple of examples, you know, take the kids outside, but I think some teachers feel like they are trapped or they don't have the permissions or they're, they're hemmed in by expectations and all of those things that, that you talk about as barriers to engagement and wellbeing. Is it the teachers that you're talking to or is it more system leaders or is it all of us? I think that it is all of us. When I think of the teachers who were the game changers in my life, and when I kind of talk with others about those teachers, they had a couple of things in common. One was they gave themselves some latitude to depart from the script. Maybe it was a script that they'd written, you know, from time to time. Mm. But the second thing is that when they did depart from the script, they did it for a very good reason related to the content that they were teaching. You know, one of the problems when you get to be older is you start recognizing some terrible patterns, like teachers with very weak content knowledge who say, I'm all about the relationships. Well, you are supposed to know the algebra or the calculus or the chemistry, right? That is part of it. So I think that that is kind of something that I I really want us to kind of have is when you kind of get that deep content knowledge, it should become meaningful it should become enriching and it should become engaging. But I I worry to a certain extent that even our people who are teaching the content knowledge don't really have that that mastery of it where, where they really feel fluid and can really kind of work all across the registers of their field. So to that extent, here's how I try to think of it so it doesn't sound so negative, Deb. I try to say, we are in a profession where if we do it right, we get to learn our whole lives long. And I am a person, sometimes I think people might take this the wrong way, but I really want people to love their jobs. I want their, them to, to be excited to go in and engage with the kids. And if the kids bring up a question, like they often will in the middle of a lesson, I want them to have great skill to kind of know, oh, that's a great question. Let's, do a, let's hit the pause button. Let's pursue that for 10 minutes and then we'll come back. Or to kind of know, ooh, that's a bit of a, that's something for me to think about. Let me kind of come back to that tomorrow when I've prepared something better, right? But to have those unbelievable skills that highly accomplished practitioners, teachers have. My heart is really in the classroom with the kids. Mm-hmm. It feels liberating now to be writing more about student engagement than about policy. Uh, I kind of went in that direction because I 
felt like I needed to understand what policy was doing in the classroom. In the end, though, it really is about the magic that teachers are able to make happen with students. That's, that's where all of us should be a bit of romantics, I think, in that classroom climate dynamic. I mean, in my own work, so I'm in a leadership role now, which means I only teach one class and that class at the moment is the year 12 literature class. I mean, there's a lot of things about my work that gets me out of bed in the morning, but the thing that I often enjoy the most in my day is that teaching, that one hour of of me and them and the content and the thinking and the discussion and, and where, it, where it might go that might surprise you as well as obviously where it needs to go um, for them to be successful. So, um, Deb, if I could ask you, uh, what are you teaching right now? The Crucible. Ah, the Crucible. We've just started that. We've come out of the joys of the Handmaid's Tale and we've entered the even further joys of the Crucible. (laughs) It's not not a very uplifting course at the moment, but I brought the Handmaid's Tale back in during the pandemic because I thought that our students could really they could really connect with the government restrictions and maybe have a different view of what that kind of dystopian government and that feeling of being uh, trapped that, that is, uh, might feel like. That is one dark book. That is one <laughs> horrific book. I mean, that is a book that is so twisted and disturbing that I'm not sure that I, I'm happy I read it in the end. My brother lives right across from Salem. Massachusetts, which is just, Mm. it's maybe a 40 minutes drive north of here. And you can let your your students know that you are speaking with a guy who is descended from one of the judges who persecuted the innocent women of Salem. And for that, I offer you my heartfelt apologies. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I'll share that with my class. (laughs) Wow. One thing that I did want to talk about while we have the time here is collaboration. I know we've talked a lot about your work with Andy Hargraves because a lot of the work that you've done, you've collaborated together. But some of the ways that I've heard you speak about collaboration is about making time for what you might call spirited disagreement or spirited conversation. And certainly I've found that the best collaboration is not getting along. It's not being in a room together and saying, oh, look, we're collaborating because we're side by side here or patting each other on the back. It's actually when you're in a collaborative relationship where there's the honesty and the transparency and the safety to be able to disagree with one another and to challenge one another. So I'm wondering either from an intellectual point of view or from a personal point of view, could you talk a little bit about the importance of good collaboration and what that might look and feel like? Good collaboration, I think, has to have a foundation of trust at a certain level, which doesn't necessarily mean agreement. So, you know, at this point, I've written four books with Andy and Lord knows how many articles. And sometimes people think that that assumes that we agree on many things. We, we often disagree <laughs> vehemently <laughs> with each other <laughs> about different things, but we somehow have the commitment that if we can push through the disagreement and we have the commitment to something higher than the disagreement that we will get to something that will be true for us and will resonate with others. So, Deb, earlier you read, I think, a paragraph from the end of the student engagement book, mm. the final paragraph. I, I want you to know that when we write a paragraph like that, that takes hours. Okay, that takes hours and hours and hours. There's a first draft, send it off to Andy, Andy sends it back to the second draft, da 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 da. Everything is just like insane detail. And a lot of it is no fun at all. A lot of it is just hard work. And then I wonder, hmm, 
I'm writing a book on student engagement. <laughs> First of all, there's this, always these kind of funny jokes like, you know, my book on mindful teaching is driving me crazy. <laughs> you know, there's these, and like, I'm totally alienated from my book on engagement, right? <laughs> but I, I guess what I would want to say for anyone listening to this is that if you kind of have a commitment to say, you know, something like excellence or the truth or, you know, the public good, something like that, and you have good colleagues who, even if you disagree with them a lot, like yesterday, I wrote a, a card for a colleague who's retirement, retiring, and I said, thank you for being a, a good colleague, a good friend, and an occasional sparring partner. Is that, how can we agree about everything in education? There's so many different issues that come up all the time. So I think that for me, that is one of the things that's missing a lot from education. And it's perhaps an occupational hazard because those of us who come into education, we're caring, we're loving, we want to encourage, we want well-being, we want the students to flourish, we want them to feel good about, we have all this positive affect. But every now and then we overdo it. And, and we should say something like, you know, this simply is not your best work, right? I know that you're, you're capable of something better than this, right? Or, you know, the way that you spoke to that student was out of turn and it sounded like bullying to me. So have, have some of those harder conversations. I think it's a very, very important thing to have, whether we're working with our colleagues, parents or students. The art of doing that well is probably something worth spending more time on. In, in the book on well-being, Andy and I describe this as the positive side of negative emotions. And, you know, it's interesting, the term engagement, we write about this in the book, it both means a, a military conflict and preparation for marriage. So it's marital and it's martial. <laughs> and anybody in a marriage, I mean, I think, knows that there's lots to argue over. I mean, how is it possible that you cannot squeeze the toothpaste from the back of the tube? How is that possible? <laughs> those, those little things of everyday life, you, you know, we have disagreements. And to a certain extent, if we can enjoy those disagreements, then that's the richness of, of collaboration. And so for educators, there's a shared moral purpose that's really important. If you've got that shared purpose together, then you know that you're collaborating and sometimes disagreeing with that endpoint in mind that you both share and then for our students, good intentions for them, I suppose. I, I say to my students, they, when I give you feedback on your work, it's going to be, this is how you can get better next time. And that's because I want you to get better next time. And so it's trying to help them to understand that I care for them and I encourage them and I want them to do better. But that means that sometimes I'm going to say things like, this is what you need to do next time to improve and that they can be okay with that. Well, ultimately, there, there will be out in the battleground or the test of life, right? And if we've prepared them well, they'll be prepared for adversity. Mm. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together. And so I'm going to move to what I like to call the enlightening round, which is our final five questions. And the first one is, what's something unexpected that many people might not know about you? I think that I would say that when I was in first through fourth grade, I went to a U.S. Department of Defense school in Naples, Italy. So that was 16 years after the Second World War had ended, and Naples was the second most damaged city in Western Europe from the Nazi occupation. And I would say that that's something that very profoundly shaped my awareness of, of the world and also my love of languages comes from that early childhood experience, which I, I haven't really written about. Mm, amazing how something that happens when we're so young can be foundational for where we go with the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. How about something that's currently on your desk? And there's a whole bunch of different things, but I have a reading group with my old um, high school uh, friends. I met some friends when I was in high school who loved literature like I did, and um, we've been working our way through the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke, the, the Duino elegies that he wrote in the uh, first quarter of this century. And so one of the things that really helped me during the pandemic was once a week, I would get together with these old friends and we would just take, you know, one sonnet or one elegy and we'd kind of go at it for an hour. And that was very sustaining. So Mm -hmm. I I often have, you know, a a book of poetry or something nearby that I can, that I can cast my eye on. And was it sustaining because of the connection and the conversation that that gave you and the engagement with literature? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of look at a poem and, and feel like it's just unbelievably dense and it's impossible to understand, but then with a group of friends to slowly unpack it and realize that there's some timeless universal truth within it is quite uplifting. Mm, and something that transcends maybe the, the hard realities of the day as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who is someone that inspires you in your work? I would say that right now the Ukrainian people inspire me. And, you know, kind of what they're doing is a very different kind of set of values because in a lot of our education we're talking about being compassionate being kind and all of that but they're being very courageous they're being fierce they are putting their bodies on the line for for what they believe so right now every day i'm following the news very very closely because i'm supposed to be in berlin this summer and 10,000 refugees are showing up in the main train station in berlin every day i, I would like to do something with them when, when i'm over there but I would, right now I'd say it's the Ukrainian people that are most inspiring mm. to me. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing and surreal to watch what's going on over there. Mm-hmm. What's something coming, that you have coming up that you're excited about? Oh, there's so many things to be excited about. So on Saturday, Andy and I are flying to Norway. We're going to be doing some workshops and seminars on the student engagement book and then topping that off with uh, some hiking in Holland, then coming back, wrapping up the semester, then going to Berlin for three months. So there's lots of things to be excited about. The baseball season has started here in the U.S. I'm a huge Boston Red Sox fan. So there's lots of good things that are coming along that uh, I'm excited about. It's also finally warmer here. Our winters Mm. are very long and very cold. And when you have COVID, it really does get to be cabin fever. So Mm. I'm excited to have warmer weather. Does it feel a bit like the world is a reawakening yes. from the last couple of years? Yes, you know, very very much here. It's great to see children out playing in the park and, you know, playing tag and basketball and roughhousing. Again, there wasn't a whole lot of that. You know, there were adults telling the kids not to get too close and that was that was awful. So it's it does feel like some liberation and I'm hoping that this will endure. Mm, hopefully. And how about finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave our listeners with? We started this online master's degree program on global perspectives and educational change. And we read um, Cindy Blackstock. She's a member of the, the Blackfoot people of Canada. And she, she has a very gentle critique of kind of things like Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and describes time in different ways than our kind of, when, when we talk in education about wanting to be relevant, we're often saying to be relevant what's right now. And the way that she writes about time is whenever you make a decision, you should think about what your ancestors seven generations prior 
might have thought, and you should anticipate what your children and great-great-grandchildren might be thinking seven generations from now. It's a really expansive definition of time. And I find that um, that's something that is very, very powerful, especially when we think of environmental sustainability. Also very, very hard for my students to wrap their heads around. You know, they're, they're kind of like, want to respond to immediately what is happening. And that's understandable, I think, when you're young. But as you're getting older, you want to open up the panorama a bit more. So I'm kind of thinking about that right now. And, and that's partly because the work on student engagement was in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., where there's a lot of indigenous peoples in, in many of our schools. And then the work in Canada that I've been doing, too, also has similar demographics. Situating the here and now in a really long continuum of what's come before and what's yet to come. Right. That's kind of a Buddhist or I've come across that of Christian mystics too, like the eternal now. There's more than all this ephemera. There's You can kind of get into a deeper space through prayer or meditation. Well, thank you, Dennis, so much for joining me today on the Edu Salon. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.